There's a beautiful, perfect order to life on Earth that's so mysterious and so profound. Yet as people, we're so dysfunctional and we seek guidance from the heavens to help us understand our purpose here and to create a sense of order. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Safian Stevens, one of the best musicians ever. He's a really good songwriter. I'm not sure about musician. No, he's a great musician. He plays everything. He hardly plays it to Paganini standard, you know what I mean? I disagree. I, I'm gonna dis- I'm just challenging you on that, Matt, and I know that you as a teacher will welcome that challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's uh, fine. I, I'm throwing it out there that he is a great musician. I've seen him live various times, three times. And he's played a myriad of weird and wonderful musicians very well and uniquely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no, if anyone would like to challenge that, then bite my ass. No, no, that's 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 absolutely. It's a, you know, music subjective. It's not a competition. It is. It's not. Uh, I tell you what, he is fantastic. Go and check him out. Me and Matt bonded very heavily on his album Illinois. If you don't know it get to know it but he was writing about a track called mercury which was from his kind of he was. planetarium piece that he wrote and it's what a what a song i've tweeted it beautiful it, isn't it yeah it's, it's absolutely beautiful so thank you safian going on the uh, interplanetary podcast spotify playlist get in jamie do you know whose birthday is it, it is today i don't hit me Stuart allen stew Rusa. Now, do you know who that is? I don't. You don't see. This is amazing. He's what? He's the module pilot for Apollo fourteen. Oh, the command module pilot for Apollo fourteen. In other words, he's the ginger Mike Collins. <laughs> That's how I like to think. That's how thought, I like to think of him. Yeah, I'm not sure he'd like to be called that, but you know, there's worse things. Well, to be called, yeah, isn't he, he, yeah, he tragically died quite young, actually, in his sixties. But yes, he took Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell to the moon. Of course, we both know those two, but yeah, he's 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 one of the least famous Apollo astronauts, really. He sounds like a legend. Well, he is a legend. Uh, he's only one of twenty-four people ever to have left low Earth orbit for a start off. Is that it? And he orbited the moon thirty-four times. Oh, that's crazy. You'd think you'd know his name, wouldn't you? He's only 24. We're into space. But Rusa, not the most common name. Stuart Allen Rusa. It would have been his birthday today. Well, happy birthday. And Saturday marks a momentous day in Russian space, which was 1933 on August the 17th. The group of Soviet engineers called GERD, or the Group for Investigation of Reactive Motion. I'm into it. Yeah. Successfully fired the first Soviet rocket that burnt liquid oxygen. So the GERD-09 experimental vehicle, or rocket projectile number nine. And it flew for 18 seconds and reached 400 metres in altitude before crashing to Earth. Well, fair play. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was under the leadership of Sergei Korolov, of course. But the team itself was led by a guy called Mikhail Kladvdivich Tikhonrovov. You're doing very well, Matt. Thank and you. I'm glad it's not me saying it. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's really a hybrid rocket because the propellant was a jelly version of petrol or gas, as our American uh, listeners would uh, prefer us to say, or solid benzene. It was like a jelly. Need to stop and get some gas. 
even though it's liquid. Don't understand that. Uh, a book I want to find, Jamie, is Mikhail yeah. Tikhonrovov's Reaching Asteroids, Ideas of Solkovsky and Modern Age. In 1979, he wrote that book. And I wonder what the contents are like, but I just cannot find any reference to it, but I know he wrote it. Well, there's some homework for our listeners right there. Yeah. Can you find, Matt, this book? Yeah, I found the PDF of The World, The Flesh and the Devil. That I ordered that bu- uh, book, Matt, on eBay. Oh, nice. There was just one second-hand copy and I snapped it up. Oh, yes. Can't oh. wait to read it. I'm, I'm actually really jealous now. That is yeah. very cool, Jamie. I was well happy. We didn't we didn't have any space news last week because we, we we had an absolutely jam packed episode with interviews and stuff. I think that may have I'll been tell our you what, it was longest like episode. Our notes, <laughs> our notes for that was like war and peace. I tell yeah. you what, but uh, so we've got some extra stuff to to go over this week. Lucky yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, luckily we, we we had to keep some of it back. Um, yeah, so did you see last night, um, we're recording this on Wednesday, by the way, so last night, Luca Palmiatano and his, and his, his DJ, DJ set, set space. space. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it did twist my melon a little bit, uh, but, but you rightly said on Twitter... Who's the guy standing next to him? I'm assuming he's not on the ISS uh, yeah, and I that, know. that was something I, on the ground. Exactly, yeah, that, that, that publicity shot of Luca with some other DJ messing around on like Pioneer, yeah. Pioneer CDJs and DJMs. It can't, that can't be, that oh, That obviously is, no. is oh, that's probably definitely an s isn't it? In the, definitely uh, don't look like they're in zero G as well. No, no, it, it, it's, um, yeah, that's definitely a mock-up because like, they can't have flown a DJ up quickly without us knowing. And plus, Matt, we all know that Pioneer hasn't got the quality that Roland has uh, oh. If you want a DJ controller <laughs> to work in space, you're going to need the brand new DJ 707M released today. Oh wow! And that's the, that's interesting. All I know about the Pioneer stuff is the gain structure on it is quite literally a joke, and it really <laughs> as, no, as like a pro engineer, they really annoy yeah. me. They really annoy me. But I mean, that's what everyone uses. And to be fair. The, the CDJ can play anything, man. You, you stick in your iPhone and it will play the MP3s off it. So it is pretty useful yeah, piece of but gear. But it I don't know. I don't. I, yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't know what's going to happen. But with, I can't uh, believe it, Matt. I mean, a DJ set in space. I hope he took our playlist up with him. Um, yeah, well, I'm, well, I'm assuming he played just played our playlist, which is, of course, what the, else do you need? The yeah. joke, the joke of DJs. I mean, are we saying that that the records he had on the ISS weren't available to the DJs on the ground? Don't get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started with DJs, Jamie. Don't get me it, started. I'm an old man that just doesn't get it. He's a very grumpy old man. Leave him alone. <laughs> Don't poke the bear. <laughs> so, uh, t- in in news, Tim Tim Peake was also at that festival. It was all part of the Stockholm Culture Festival, which is going on, and their theme yeah. this year is space. And Tim Peake and Thomas Reiter are both going to be there making personal appearances. But Tim Peake is taking an unpaid leave of, leave of absence from ESA for two years. Why? Where's he off to? He's off to sort of concentrate on the UK Space Agency and their education oh. and outreach. And, of course, cool. he's got his job with the Prince's Trust. He's a scout ambassador. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, ESA director, 
uh, said that all of the astronauts in the class of 2009 will fly twice by 2024. So Tim Peake will definitely return back to ESA in a couple of years' time to continue his training and uh, finish off his tour of duty, as it were. Maybe he's taken a break because he's scared that we're going to interview him again because you used the peak joke oh, yeah, in your need... first sentence. Yeah, we peaked early. That's because oh, we were dear. interviewing him in January. Ja- Jamie, Cringe let's let's mo- let, let, yeah. let's move on from my my ter- terrible moment. Well, the worst bit was I forgot to press record on on, yeah. the, on, on the microphone. That was that even <laughs> definitely better. not the best moment. <laughs> um, uh, I tell you what, though, Jamie. Did you see yeah. the close shave of asteroid 2019? I didn't. What happened? And there's an asteroid called 2019 OK, 100-meter wide asteroid, and it was only detected days before it passed Earth and and was really, really close, i.e. 65,000 kilometers away. That's half the distance. Well, much less than half the distance to the moon, so it, it's come in between yeah. us, us and the moon. Now, had that had hit us, that would have been a once in a 10,000 year event and uh, potentially as powerful as the 50 megaton Zara bomber, uh, which would not Jeez. be which would not be good. Uh, and you know, there's estimated to be about 30,000 of that size asteroid out there that have yet to be found. We've only found Ooh. a couple of thousand of them, and we know by just by the maths and statistics, there's another thirty thousand of them floating out there. So well, that's uh, why we should make hay while the sun shines. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe take uh, planetary defence slightly more seriously than we do. Yes, please. Now, did you see that uh, Franklin is in trouble? Of course, of course, he is. <laughs> she. The Rosalind Franklin <laughs> Rover. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, Ros? Yeah, yeah oh, old right. Ros, old Ros. Um, yeah, that. Thought you're talking about one of my cousins or something. Oh no, no, no. Well, I was talking about you. You're in trouble, but but we'll we'll talk about oh, well, that off here. air. Um, yeah. Uh, no, it's um, there might there might be a delay. It might not go up in 2020. Unlike the oh, NASA, now. unlike the NASA Ro- Russell rover. And I'm assuming they're going yeah. to call it the Russell Rover after oh, of course they esteemed yeah. astronomer Henry Norris Russell. Um, uh, how cool would that be if both rovers are the Franklin and the Russell? Just that be, would be that'd be perfect. It would be um, epic. So yeah, yeah. but anyway, anyway, the NASA one's fine, but the but the ESA one, yeah, no, there's a problem with the parachute. Now, as far as far as I can tell. The Franklin Rover parachute is is the biggest ever space parachute by far, because Curiosity's parachute was only sixteen meters across. This one that failed had a bit of problems. Is thirty five meters across? That's big. Yeah, and it's got three miles of cords all wrapped up in as well, and takes five days to fold up and configure. <laughs> Whoa! But I did find a bigger parachute. So when NASA, so when NASA was developing the Ares One um, booster, uh, ATK tested a one-ton, forty-five-meter parachute. That that must be the biggest parachute ever. If not, well, surely an, it's another it's another thing for our listeners to maybe find out if there's a bigger parachute than the ATK one-ton, 45-metre parachute for returning on, the Addis One booster. I, I dare you. I double dare you. I doubled. I triple dare them. 
physical challenge. Um, Do you remember that, Matt, at school? Physical challenge. Oh, well, yeah. I don't, I didn't, I I never used to like it unless it involved, (laughs) if it involved like distance running, I'm terrible. I've I've got something wrong with me, but, but, but like physical strength, Jamie, as you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a machine. I'm essentially. You are a machine. They they call me the Arnold Schwarzenegger of Devon now. Well, people are very much looking forward to our 100 meter race. Oh yeah. I forgot about our 100 meter race. That we're going to have to film. Oh yes, definitely. Is, is we will it? live stream that. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Well, we're definitely. In I can't. World I could, of trouble. Oh my god, I can't wait. Um, it's all changed with small sats, Jamie. A few weeks ago, SpaceX and Soyuz both entered the market with by saying that they're going to do regular rideshare missions. So just have like oh. a yeah each each month or so. Well, just, about time, I say. Yeah, and so uh, they were just going to go up with lots of satellites, and you knew exactly when the next rideshare was, so you could you could hop on and and get into yeah. space if you're a nice small satellite. Um, I love it. Which, in conflicting kind of circumstances, Vector Space are having a good week by having the uh, U.S. Air Force. Uh, awarded uh-huh. a th- $3.4 million contract to launch Aslon nice. 45. But then two days later, the CEO Cantrell left and the company started laying off everyone, leaving John Garvey oh. in charge. So it's not looking good not for nice. uh, Vector Space. Uh, and in the meantime, Rocket Lab, did you see uh, Peter Beck announcing that Rocket Lab are going to go reusable? We're going to catch it with a helicopter as it parachutes down. And I wonder if that's how Orbix were going to do it. You know, he was being very mysterious about how they were going to make it reusable. Wonder if it's, yeah. I wonder if that's how Orbex were going to uh, do their ah, reusability as well. You could be right. Well, that mm. is good news. Yeah, yeah. We're all for that. Yeah, all for a bit of reusability. Less less environmental damage, perhaps. Who knows? Less uh, is more. Yeah, and Orbex have signed a deal with uh, ISL, a, a, a Dutch company, and with a UK company called InSpace. Um, they've been signing deals to launch satellites. One of them, the InSpace, the UK one, is the Faraday 2B satellite that might launch from Scotland in 2022. Ooh. So that's that's probably... That's not far away. Mm, that's not far away at all. Three years, Jamie. I can't wait. Uh... I can't wait for UK launches. Come on, hurry up. And in more small sat news, I suppose we've got the Chinese startup Linkspace that have been uh, testing their rocket hop test. Ah, yes. So now we have SpaceX, Blue Origin, the Long March 8, Rocket Labs, and now Linkspace, all capable of reusable booster technology or on their way, leaving Europe trailing quite a bit behind, I think. Yeah, we need to catch up. It's the future. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see that uh, the little moss piglets uh, potentially survived their trip to the moon on the Beersheet I, lander? I did see that. That is excellent stuff, and I'm I'm happy for them. Of course, they're all dried up and desiccated. Well, aren't we all? They're encased in a epoxy amber as well. <laughs> but you could you could go and revive them, but they're definitely not going to suddenly sort of like crawl out and start infesting the moon. Sorry to any amber that was offended yeah. by that. Not poxy amber, epoxy oh. amber. <sighs> Jamie, you knew that. <laughs> um, 
a few hours ago, Jamie, the, one of the most exciting things are going from Israeli um, uh, moon attempts to the Indian moon oh, shot really? and the Chandrayaan oh. two. The yeah, Chandrayaan two that's been orbiting the Earth recently, uh, uh, sort of making its orbit bigger and bigger and bigger. It it got to an altitude of a hundred and forty two, well, almost one hundred and forty three thousand kilometers at its apogee. Uh, a really elliptical orbit because it's only 276 kilometers at the nearest point at perigee. Um, but it's done, it has done a successful uh, translunar burn and is now on its way to be caught by the moon uh, by about August the 20th to be landing on the moon on September the 7th. That is beautiful. I can't wait for it's that. It's going to be absolutely cool. The X-37B that we've talked about, that's 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 now gone way past 700 yeah. days of being in space, doing what only Dodd knows. That's a, a, a joke about God rhyming with the Department of Defense, Dodd. <laughs> Good. Good, man. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and it's uh, I reckon it's testing uh, Trump's American liquid metal nuclear propulsion. Oh, yeah. There was uh, Trump was bragging that they had the same technology as the Russians when the Russians one blew up and everyone was going, oh my God, they're developing this this liquid nuclear propulsion for their uh, missiles, which is pretty bad news. That is yeah. mini Chernobyl. Oh, Could you imagine? Um, but a really interesting paper, Jamie. You'll love this. So an interesting paper by a guy called Jacob Lustig Jaeger, yeah, Victoria S. Meadow. And Andrew P. Linkowski. Oh, yes, I love that. All of those have got great names, haven't they? Um, they came up with a paper uh, that was published in the Astronomical Journal uh, that basically points out, and they do lots of simulations to prove that the James Webb Telescope might be able to do some really good atmosphere detection of the TRAPPIST-1 system Oh yeah! during its first year of operation. So as soon as JWST is up and running, we might have some of the most incredible news from TRAPPIST-1 within a year. That is going to be... I mean, it's just so much going on, isn't there? Yeah, that that is there is there is a lot going. Well, that's not going on yet, and of course, it could just blow up on the uh, launch pad. With oh, uh, Matt, where's your positive? Where's your PMA? <laughs> well, has to be said, Ariane Five did its third launch of the year this uh, just now, and it was the heaviest payload it had ever done. It, it's improved its performance. It's something like the 145th consecutive nominal burn of the upper stage engine, and the and and like yeah, so Ariane Five is really, really, really reliable. So well, let it, it's it's looking good. It's looking good. That's if Ariane Five is still f- flying by the time JWST's ready. Is that true? That it might not be flying. Yeah. Well, yeah. As oh. in uh, Ariane Six will be taking over at some point. And if if the James Webb Space Telescope isn't ready by that turnover, you can't just sort of keep. Yeah, you know Ariane Five's lying about. They have to sort of be made, and and it, and the production run may have ended by then. Matt, you know, I mean, it's time, unlikely. You know, every time you say James Webb, I get, I just get nervous. I know, <laughs> it is. It's very, it is nerve wracking because yeah. that is a, a many, many billions 
um, that rely on a really, really complicated launch. Yeah. It Off. is scary, but, you know, it's going to work and we'll be there, won't we, Matt? I follow a guy, oh. luckily, called Chuan Do. Does he know? I, I, I stay quite a long way behind him, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> he and plus you know my training yeah true um i i he can't really see me stealth um but i follow him on twitter as well and uh he came up with a very interesting uh little tweet that was an infrared image of the supermassive black hole sagittarius a star at the center of our own galaxy yes and it flared brighter than it has ever done, at least twice as bright as it's ever done in the 20 years of observation. So something is making it flare up, and they don't know what it was. Mm. So that it could be really big news, that. So it's definitely worth staying tuned to that story. He's written a preliminary paper. So there's a link to that on his, on, on his tweet, uh-huh. uh, which, I've in, which I've included in the notes. Uh, but yeah, it could, remember a couple of years ago there was a massive um, sort of dust cloud or a, a gas cloud, I, I should say, that was that that came really really close yeah. to the black hole, and they were able to sort of watch how it went past and everything. They think that it might be something to do with that, um, or it might be that the star SO two that gets really close to the black hole, uh, made some changes to the accretion flow in the accretion disk, but Ooh. they don't know. You, you know I love an accretion flow. Black hole flare-up. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, Twan Do of UCLA. Black hole flare-up. So, yeah, let's let's get on to uh, space habitat stuff, Jamie. Let's, let's We're supposed to be in space. We're supposed to be in space habitat month, so we, we ought to maybe talk about it. So, well, we probably should. The really big problem with all these massive space habitats that we've been talking about, your Bernal spheres and your O'Neill cylinders, uh-huh. is you, you you clearly can't launch them from Earth. You ju- it, it, there's just too much mass. And ideally, you want to build these things from the resources in space. I'm agreeing with you, yeah. Uh, which means we have to start manufacturing in space. Yes, Definitely. And I'm going to give you a little bit of history about manufacturing in space because this is actually quite exciting. So have you have ever heard of a thing called Z-Blan or Z-Blan? I haven't. Weirdly, if you've read the book Artemis by the same author as The Martian recently, yeah. um, he has a material called Zappho, I think it's called, and it's very similar to Z-Blan. Z-Blan, basically, is a heavy metal fluoride glass that was accidentally discovered in 1975 by Poulin and Lucas of the University of Rennes in France. Oh, oui. And it's called Z-Blan or Z-Blan because it contains zirconium, barium, lanthanum, aluminium, and sodium. Of course, the chemical symbol for sodium stuff. is Na, hence the N, Z-Blan. And yeah, so that, uh, and, but this stuff makes the very best fiber optic cable. As in, it's so much better than normal um, fiber optic cable. Okay, but not, but not only that. If you make it in zero G, it becomes even better because of the way that the crystals form. It doesn't block the light, so you get this absolutely brilliant uh, fiber optic cable. Wow! The company made in space, 
actually have like a microwave-sized device on the International Space Station, a kind of 3D printing device that pulls ZBLAN and makes it on the ISS, then brings it back down to Earth as a commercial product. That is genius. So, in some ways, made made in space might be the first truly industrial process that in space. And also made in space have got their microwave-sized 3D printer that they've been printing objects in space as well. So that's mm. the first commercially available 3D printer in space. So made in space really do know what they're doing when it comes to manufacturing in space. In fact, might go down in history as being the, the people that very much started it. Sounds like it. And let me quote Jason Dunn, who's the co-founder and CTO of Made in Space. He says, yes. For Made in Space, projects like Rama that exist somewhere near the edge of our product roadmap help drive all our closer team work in the right direction. For all of us in the US, we are lucky to have an agency like NASA, which has the vision to continue to fund NIAC and other programs that will define the future resiliency of our species. Think, yeah. Hell of a quote. Yeah, the NIAC, the Innovative Advanced Concepts branch of NASA. And they paid uh, Made in Space a lot of money to come up with this Rama. Do you know what that stands for, Matt? Oh, go, no, go for it. <clears throat> Reconstituting asteroids into mechanical automator. What do you think about that? It's really intriguing for a start off, isn't it? Because there are quite a few concepts in this paper that took me a while to get my head round. So, yeah, the objective of the study is to, to establish the feasibility of using the age-old technique of analog computers and mechanisms to convert entire asteroids into enormous autonomous mechanical spacecraft. This is it. It's a simple theory. It's a simple theory to go out, get the asteroids, and turn them into essentially mechanical spacecraft to retrieve them into a place where we can actually go and get them. Mining asteroids at the moment is just way more expensive than mining the same materials on yeah. Earth, which is why, you know, this asteroid mining just isn't quite feasible yet. Yeah, so, but you've got to speculate to accumulate, Matt. They need to get up there, get the cash. No, absolutely. And one of the resources, actually, that have been, that's been developed in this paper, um, which is this asteroid finding software, might very well be a very useful bit of software for anyone who wants to speculate to accumulate on asteroid mining. Here we go. Uh, but, we'll get, but we'll get on to that in a minute. So Made in Space um, made the report to, to try and address these issues. So it the main issue, issue with building space-based infrastructure. So that's things like if you want to build a space station, you kind of need this technology in place. You just cannot lift all this stuff up. Mm. Um, the need for space-based resources. Um, how do you get all these resources that are just lying around in space? Um to overcome some of the launch and propulsion uh, problems. Yeah, data collection, Matt, and asteroid detection. That's that's a Massive, huge one. It? It's more it's bigger. Yeah, it's bigger than you think actually, because as we'll see, like detecting what an asteroid is is really difficult. Uh, well, as we just heard about the, you know, we 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 don't even know all where all the asteroids are. We just know that they're exactly. there somewhere. Uh, um, uh, how to remotely mine asteroids? 
without the need of humans. So how to do that with um, robots, etc., and how to get miniaturization of all these things so they get better and better. What about generative design algorithms? Yeah, that's pretty that's important big one. as well. But the main core problem that they think is the transportation of asteroid resources, and that's what Rama architecture is all about it's how you go and grab one of these massive asteroids and get it into a place where you can actually usefully mine it and start getting the stuff right so all of space industry at the moment is just about data that's it there's no physical products apart from the odd bit of fiber optics which is by made in space so literally it's just about data so the project in a nutshell is what would it take to turn an asteroid into a self-powered spacecraft? Hmm. The big question. The concept is based on a, a seed craft. So you've got this spacecraft that contains a sophisticated ISRU. Do you know what that is, Jamie? Oh, no. In situ resource utilization. Oh, I, I was, it was on the tip of my tongue. It's going to be the buzzword of a lot of things from now on in space. It's all about how do you use the stuff. Like when we go to the moon, the only way we can really make a moon village work is through ISRU, in situ resource utilization, or going to Mars and, and making methane using ISRU. So then you've got additive manufacturing and robotic capabilities all on board this seed spacecraft wow and then that that arrives at the asteroid and it converts the materials of the asteroid into the spacecraft subsystems so the materials of the asteroid get made into propulsion energy storage guidance systems so and at that point the, the asteroid becomes a spacecraft in its own right and can autonomously carry out a basic mission i.e. fly itself back to a place where it's easy to be connected. Yes. Um and then in the meantime the seed spacecraft has undocked itself from the asteroid and gone on to um attach itself to another yeah, asteroid and begin the process amazing. all over again. God damn. It's incredible to imagine, isn't it? I mean it's it's hard to imagine, but if we think about in the future, if this becomes the case, which undoubtedly it will, I mean, that is mind-blowing, isn't it? So many neat ideas. Um, the really big idea, really, in, in the sort of first part of this is that Rama's using the materials that it finds at the asteroid mm. uh, for the mass, for the, it, all these things that are mass-intensive. So instead of taking up things like tons of propellant, yeah, just build them there. Yeah, you 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 try and work out a way of building the propulsion system using the mass yeah. of the asteroid itself. Yeah, right. Of course, that means that more mass can be returned to uh, low Earth orbit, where it can be actually used. Um, and and the most incredible, con- uh, like one of the sort of bigger concepts as well, is if you could have a, a, a train of mechanically driven asteroid spacecraft or mine carts that are stretching to the depths of the asteroid belt and bringing stuff to Earth. So they could remain in a kind of orbit uh, and you just fill up these hollow asteroids with with stuff and they just keep delivering new materials all the time. <laughs> so you can actually set up a God kind of damn. Tr- train system. Yeah. How amazing is Which that? Which is really exciting. It really is. I mean, because if they can work out what the asteroid is made of and they need that metal or whatever it might be to build a machine that's going to mine the asteroid or or whatever 
I mean, that's the way forward, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and ultimately, it gives humanity access to that area of space, safer, faster, and cheaper. So it's a really, really interesting, um, a really interesting paper. But uh, one of the things is, is finding the asteroids in the first place. And through observation, you can only, you know, through telescopes, you can only really sort of tell a few things about an asteroid. You can only really tell its apparent position. Uh, then you kind of work out its apparent ma uh, magnitude. Yes. And then from its albedo, you can work out its absolute magnitude. And then from that, you can just about work out its diameter. But that's a lot of work to, to get even to that. Yes. And what you really need to do is find its diameter, its composition, its detailed composition, its rotation period, its shape, its mass, density, and porosity. And all of those are incredibly difficult to find out. In fact, you can only really find out an asteroid's mass density and how porous it is by actually visiting the space, uh, visiting the asteroid itself. Mm. So that is. That's huge. So it's one of the things that the seed craft has to be able to do is analyze. Yeah, just go and get all the data, exactly like you said. How important is that? So you've got, you've got your common types of asteroid. The worst kind of mentioning, you've got your dark albedo, low albedo, carbonaceous, carbonaceous asteroids, which are the C type. And that makes up most of the asteroids in the outer belt. They're less common in near-Earth orbit. They've got low density and high prevalence of organic compounds like water, ice, and other volatiles. Then you've got your silicaceous asteroids, your bright S asteroids. They're bright uh, and they're in the inner belt, so they're closer to Mars, and they're also the most common near-Earth object type of asteroid. And they're normally stony and metallic in composition, but they have very little water, ice, or volatiles. Huh. And then you've got... Then you've got your metallic asteroids. And we've talked about an asteroid called Psyche 16 yes. before when, when NASA uh, announced the Psyche mission. And that is such an interesting object, a, a big metal, solid metal asteroid that could be the core of a Mars-sized planet. Is this the one that you thought was made of gold? It's almost certainly made of gold. And if, if you divvied out all the gold to everyone on Earth, We'd all be billionaires oh. if the gold market hadn't crashed hideously. Cheers, gold market. <laughs> so uh, Psyche 16 contains an insane amount of heavy metals and, and rare metals. And, and yes, I mean, as a, as a kind of gold mine, there is no place in the solar system better, probably. That is... <sighs> so you've got your three different types of of asteroid which would which would change how uh, rama itself would operate at each uh -huh. one do you remember the antikythera device i yeah barely i remember it a bit yeah there was a program about the antikythera by, uh, the bbc did horizon and if you've never seen that you have to watch it because it's one of the most amazing programs i've ever seen basically they think archimedes built what essentially as a computer and no one built anything as sophisticated for another thousand wow. years it's two thousand years ago and and they found this thing by luck and they sort of were able to kind of see through this rusted copper 
disaster and and work out all these different cogs and how it basically represented the solar system, even the way that the moon orbited the Earth in its elliptical orbit. They were able to represent that by these really clever ways of of altering the cogs. It's absolutely an amazing, amazing device, like just mind-blowingly good. But the reason why I'm talking about it is because uh, the idea that Made in Space have is to change the asteroids into that kind of device, an automata, a a mechanical computer. So instead of bringing up like complicated electronics that are hard to make in space, you can build all these mechanical things in situ. So mechanical computation devices like the Antikythera. Wow. And if Archimedes can do it 2,000 years ago, why not get a seed spacecraft totally. with modern technology to be able to, to build it now? So you could build even the guidance systems, the guidance navigation and control systems from these really clever mechanical computers. And maybe that would be a way of saving mass. Instead of taking a computer, you just have a small instruction that you set. Build there. That, yeah. It means that you, can, that you can build there, yeah. Jeez. Um, the flywheels themselves that would sort of steady the asteroid, that they would be built in situ. And, of course, the propulsion system. I think the propulsion system is the thing that, that is most likely to be sort of made in situ. Yes. I think, actually, the command and communications and guidance navigation and control systems, I think, is a little bit far-fetched to be made mechanically and, and and especially considering how light a computer chip is these days it it's seems pretty light. really you could you couldn't just take like a hundred of those up in the seeds spacecraft and speed up the process of making these things that's the only thing that I, I i'm a little confused about but of course that's the whole thing so it's it's up to the 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 designer of the Rama of for that particular asteroid. What is the bring versus build trade off for any given asteroid? That's a good question. Uh, and uh, with propulsion, it's really really obvious. So if you were to bring the propulsion from Earth, it would double the mass of the seed craft even for a five-metre asteroid. But we want to bring a 100-metre and bigger asteroids back because there's no point just grabbing no. a five-metre asteroid. That's pathetic, So, which would be impossible. You just wouldn't be able to uh, take up enough uh, propulsion to be able to do that. So uh, it, the propulsion system seems really... And I can't wait to tell you about to, tell you about the propulsion system because that is so crazy cool. Oh, let, let so let me know. give you an example of... Well, the, I'll give you an example of the Rama process okay. from, from beginning to end. So you've got Rama 1, which is in 2038. So 19, 19, in 19 years' time, should be very exciting. So the Rama seed craft will use electric propulsion and gravity assists to get to the near-Earth asteroid 2009 UY19, which is 36 to 163 metres okay. wide. And will be and will be within fifteen lunar distances of Earth in twenty thirty nine, and approximately every thirty three years thereafter. So it gets pretty close. So it's able to visit it fairly easily. Mm. And when it arrives, it starts organising the available in situ resources. 
by analysing the asteroid. Yeah. Then it starts breaking down the asteroids and, and all the materials using lasers and robots and all those kind of things and starts stockpiling all the feedstock and all the waste is used is going to be used as mass for the propellant. And all these techniques are being uh, pioneered so by NASA, epic. KSC, Swamp Works team, and uh, all those industry mining initiatives that have been happening. Um, and then a mechanical energy storage systems are fabricated on the asteroid and charged with power from the seed craft. So the seed craft's got big solar panels that'll be able to store some of this energy in things like springs and, well, we'll get onto these wobbling um, massive steel structures in a minute. Uh, and then the seed craft assembles a unique array of mechanical linkages from the asteroid uh, using in situ resources, derived components, uh, and the and that will allow the time and control of the asteroid systems. And then the Seacraft departs, triggers the asteroid's pre-programmed sequence of events, and then makes its way on its own to the Earth-Moon Lagrange 5 point. Ah, oh, yes. L5. And that's where the asteroid mining activity is already underway and Rama 1 resources will be incredibly useful. And the Seacraft has gone on to start building Rama 2. Wow. That is so special, isn't it? So one of the cool things is is this analysing asteroids. And there's a piece of software that the Rama team developed called Rock Finder. Mm. And, they're go- and they're going to eventually release this piece of software. And they say that it potentially has a disruptive kind of thing that if you're, if you're into future asteroid mining, um, it's essentially if you've got this piece of software, you can suddenly realize, oh, my God, it's actually worth going to this asteroid and mining it because it's going to be so valuable. So this piece of software could be something that if you're – Taking asteroid mining seriously, something that you need to get your hands on, basically. So Rock Finder is Rock Finder, the there we go. You heard it here first. Rock Finder. So let me just tell you about the way that this asteroid is going to swim through space like a giant jellyfish. Now this is what I've been waiting for. Uh, I've been talking about this with George and we're trying to work out like, is this the best method? But it, it, it's re- it's so cool and so novel that I, I've never heard anything like it. So I, I thought I'd just want to speak about it. But they worked out that there's different types of propulsion for different types of asteroid. We talked about yeah. the C, the S, and the M type asteroids. If it was a C, you might want to use just the volatiles that are there to actually create just your normal kind of liquid oxygen and liquid uh-huh. hydrogen propulsion, just like a normal conventional rocket. Yeah. But... If you've found a S-type asteroid, this mechanical mass driver might be very much the way forward. So the mechanical mass driver, what the hell is it? Whoa. So so what basically, the Seed spacecraft, it starts mining the asteroid and it creates lots of waste mass, but at the same time starts to make steel. Right, and this steel made into very, very long, thin beams of steel that extrude out of the asteroid itself. So you can imagine that the asteroid has has these enormous steel bars all sticking out, all yeah. in a big, massive circle all around the asteroid. Yeah. Right? Now the seed craft, once it's finished um, uh, construction of the asteroid 
it's using its own propulsion system starts to kick the asteroid so it goes uh just gives it big forward nudges right now those kicks don't really impart any kind of significant delta v but if they're properly timed at the fundamental frequency of these 16 extended steel rods hmm. that are protruding from the asteroid they start to swing back and forth can you imagine like you keep knocking it and these yeah. massive steel bars start like swaying around now so these slings begin to oscillate back and forth and after 3 days of continuous kicks the slings are rocking back and forth with high enough amplitude to bend all the way down to the asteroid's surface. And the slenderness ratio of the slings, 250 to 1, is large enough to remain fully elastic when bent that far, allowing it to oscillate like a pendulum with only a bit of thermal loss of energy, right? So, so the sea craft then uh, disengages and flies off to its uh, Rama 2 target. Right. Uh, and once the slings are in motion, they oscillate at a period of 2.1 seconds, and at the peak of their swing, the tips are travelling 312 metres a second, uh, which is the theoretical maximum velocity of the material. And at the extreme of the swing, the tip picks up a bit of the asteroid material that's been mined using magnets that are on the end and as it picks up this 10 kilo, 10 kilogram piece of waste material it flings back up and as it gets to the kind of maximum arc of its swing it throws that 10 kilogram shot into space and of course, that means that it's it's throwing a, a mass behind it, and therefore the reactive force is pushing the asteroid forward. So you've Couldn't got that all... potentially be dangerous, Matt. Well, I mean, it's just chucking rocks in space. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's but... dangerous. <laughs> yeah, but saying, those rocks could it hit? What? Could it, it could it hit the next asteroid behind it, breaking some of the machinery? Oh, I don't know. I doubt it. I'm very Remember... concerned. I need to speak to these Ram a lot. Well, it's 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 something that's worth bringing up. Do you think up. they've I, thought of it? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I, I think everyone just assumes the sparseness and the vast emptiness of space. I mean, that that's the thing. It's so Man, empty. what have I that, told you about assuming? Yeah, no, it does make an ass out of you and me. So yeah. we should. It, it's it's worth bringing up that point. I wonder if it is a point. Well, we should get one of them up. on the potty. So a full throttle with all slings operating, the asteroid accelerates at 11 micro Gs, which is pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's all right. That's all you need. It will look like a jellyfish, basically. These massive steel slings swinging back and forth, picking up rocks and firing it out. I'd love to see a brilliant animation of that. That would be so good. Do we know anyone that could make an animation? Listeners... How good are you on animation? Please, someone make this. Well, I wonder, I, George might make it in Kerbal. Let's I, I try suspect it. Let's you, it up. You, you need quite a few mods in there. So, uh, yeah, there's other uses, of course. You could actually use this for asteroid deflection. You know, if there's an, a, a near-Earth asteroid heading to Earth, you might be able to stick these steel structures on there and actually uh, deflect it enough so that it's that it doesn't hit Earth. Change its yeah. course. Oh, wow. Just because you've got this hollowed out asteroid arriving at Lagrange point five, you might want to hollow it out more and actually have a pretty decent spacecraft. 
you know, a whole new type of spacecraft or even a space habitat. You know, this, this could be perfect for uh, a Mars transportation system. So an asteroid that's been hollowed out, you kit it out with all the necessary um, stuff that you want, including nice environment. You can even spin it up a little bit to create some a small bit of gravity. And, and off you yes. go. You've got a really nice um, spacecraft for going to Mars in, for example. So, Well, I love it. I'm into it. Sign me up. It's just so cool, isn't it? Isn't it cool? This is one of the coolest. This is why we've dragged it over a few episodes. Got to get some pictures up. So yeah, cool. the, yeah. I've I've put a lot of pictures in in the in the notes. The I, I just think it's there's so many really cool concepts. A a it the concept of turning an asteroid into a spacecraft is cool. It's not new. Goes back quite. It, uh, we we talked about it last week. That goes back. But this this idea of the that type of mechanical jellyfish style um, propulsion system, the idea of making some of the subsystems, your guidance and navigation, like the Antikythera uh, uh, mechanism, is yes. just like that's so cool, isn't it? I mean, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really really cool idea, and made in space are a really cool company. They're, they're a really cool company. So I'm going to look at what they're doing over the next few years and, and go, wow. We need to keep a close eye on them. I think we should invite them in too. Yeah. Oh, we should definitely we should definitely try and get someone from Made in Space. We are going to reach out. Very, very, very cool. Um, I thought just to finish up, Jamie, we would just talk about some of the other NASA concepts that are like the ones that we've been talking about where this Rama initiative by the way i noticed in the report rama that it didn't mention arthur c Clarke at all it didn't mention that the rama thing seems and I was thinking, unfair well i thought that was really really odd i was thinking maybe they were just unaware of it but luckily i did find a blog post i did find a, a medium post by jason dunn where he does actually yeah. say that the inspiration behind it was actually arthur c Clarke's rama so it was like it was odd that that wasn't mentioned in the report, but the um, but yes, it, it does actually come from Arthur C. Clarke's Rama. So well, I, I think they should name him. What have we discussed over over the over the last few weeks? We've discussed Bernal spheres. We've discussed we Stanford toruses. We've discussed O'Neill cylinders. But there's a few others that are sort of similar variations on those, Jamie. That I thought we may as well just quickly rattle through. Let's do it. Have you ever heard of the Lewis One? Can't say I have. It's uh, it's, it's just another cylinder, but it's a lot smaller than the O'Neill cylinder. Tick. The Kalpana One, which is another short cylinder, which is I think is just an updated version of the Lewis One. But uh-huh. one of the ones that one of the ones that comes up quite a lot is the Bowler, which is um, essentially if you've got a spacecraft on the end of a basically a long piece of rope yes um that they you, you can spin those and as long as you've got the counterweight on the other side it would give you um uh this you know artificial gravity the only problem is if there's any change in weight on either one it would spin out of control which is pr- pretty worrying no so you need well you so you need uh, quite a bit of control and, and way of actually exchanging weight between the two systems so they've actually thought about things like if you've got a habitat on each end you could use the plumbing and things like that to kind of yes. keep making sure that they were the counterweight was exactly right all the time uh-huh. um 
but that's re- but that is actually probably the cheapest way of making you know um artificial gravity because uh, really the 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 gravity equipment is just a cable that's it yeah that is your that is your gravity equipment um but the thing is if as soon as you start sticking radiation shielding and stuff like that on then you need a very strong cable and then the cable starts to get really really heavy etc cetera, etc cetera. so right. how do you build up a giant habitat and one of the things that nasa thought about instead of using uh, resources from space is to use these things called beaded habitats where you start maybe with a with the bowler where you've got like a uh, where you've got two small say like the international space station each each one of those modules you've got one of them on the end and then you start and then you start connecting more and more habitats each of these little tiny beads as it were uh first of all it would be a dumbbell then it would turn into a bow tie arrangement then a ring and then a cylinder of beads and then you could have an array of, of, of cylinders and things like that. So you could build up giant uh, space structures using these kind of tinier components. Wow. But, yeah, so it's, it's a way of sort of growing a space station, which I think is quite an interesting one, although you're still stuck then. You're then stuck with these small habitats, which isn't great. You haven't Who got wants these... to be stuck exactly. with one these... of those? You haven't got these open vistas of, say, the O'Neill cylinder or uh, right. the Stanford Taurus. So that that's what makes those so appealing, isn't it? So um, appealing. Then um, we we talked about Dandridge M. Cole and his hollowing out of asteroids. We did. So, uh, and, of course, obviously Project Rama is a hollowing out of an asteroid and using materials to... To, to get it to, to go where it, where you want it to go. Well, there's a thing called the bubble world that Dandridge came up with. And uh-huh. basically you you drill a massive hole in the asteroid, right? Yeah. And then you, f- you fill it with water and then you heat up the outside of the asteroid until it starts melting. And as you spin it very, very fast, the whole thing starts to expand like a big ball. Imagine like a glass oh. blower. It's like that. Yeah. It's like a, a glass blower, but on a massive asteroid. So you're sort of creating a bubble of of material. Uh, yeah, and so you can make whatever form you want. And then once it's set, you go in and you kit it out as a habitation. So, yeah, that I'd was... like to have a go. Have you ever done glass blowing, Matt? No, I haven't, actually. Have you? Yeah, no. It's probably yeah. not the kind of thing you can just do at your local leisure center is it well, it might be it's the sort of thing you can do down your your local community college maybe i don't know well i'm gonna look into it kim stanley robinson one of my new favorites um yeah. uh, wrote about terrarium asteroids so asteroids that you've hollowed out and again he 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 puts a lot of detail kim stanley robinson obviously got massively into this idea of hollowing out asteroids and spinning them and building like you could do whatever you want with them is is exactly the point you could turn them into spacecraft you could turn them into habitats you could turn them into trains a bit like that rama thing where you 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 essentially have have these things just staying in the orbit they were in but being able but that way you can use these things as means of getting around the solar system that's right as 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 kind of just 
you get on one, get on the next, and they're nice and comfortable inside because you've spun them up to give you artificial gravity and there's nice fields and you could have whatever kind of vista that you wanted inside. It'd be, yeah. What would you have, Matt? I would have the town of Ilfracum set inside the asteroid so you wouldn't know you'd left. And Beautiful. You'd... There you go. As Kim that Stanley makes Robinson... me think that you're very happy, Matt, and you're content in life and where yeah, you are. yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson describes it as walking into a map that's been rolled into a tube. Oh, I like I that. Believe. Yeah, yeah. The last two are your mega behemo gargantuan designs. Here we go. The, the bishop ring. Now, this 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 <laughs> this is <laughs> you like a bishop ring, don't you? <laughs> oh, you said it, not me. Um, For that, once, it wasn't me. Yeah, that is made from carbon nanotubes, and I think it, that, and so it's it's essentially a Stanford torus, but a thousand kilometers in radius and five hundred kilometers in width. And That's the advantage, uh, yeah, it is it is far. And the advantage of that is if you build the retention walls two hundred kilometers mm. in height, you don't actually need a roof or anything like that because the atmosphere is is heavy enough that it will stay inside the ring as it as it rotates yes so it's basically absolutely vast and as you look at it it would look really really weird because it would the the atmosphere would be sort of clinging to the inside of the ring but it's massive obviously it's absolutely huge and uh, and that's the same with the mckendry cylinder which is uh, another similar concept as the o'neill cylinder except it's much bigger it's 4,600 kilometers long and 460 kilometers in radius. So Jeez. as you get them bigger, they take on new properties, which is, which is exciting. So th- they are all your space habitats, which just leaves us with one more episode, Jamie, of dealing with habitats on planets. This is what we're going to do next. Moon villages, Mars villages, etc., etc it's a beautiful thing sorry it's another long podcast but we hope you're enjoying this stuff oh man that was that was quite a we got quite a lot of well, i'm info. glad we haven't i'm glad we're not putting a 40 minute interview in <laughs> and me i'm glad we're not doing that because it takes a million years to edit but uh, the well, notes for this episode are quite good jamie so do great. make your way to the interplanetary podcast so matt if people want to uh know more about our podcast and possibly know how to support us, where should they go? They should go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Right, I'm off to listen to Illinois by Sufjan Stevens. What are you up to, Matt? I think I might do exactly the same. Let's do it. Should we press play at the same time? Absolutely. And then if we oh, play it yes. if we play it loud enough, someone in say Bristol will be able to hear it in stereo. <laughs> well, I'm in Bristol tomorrow because I'm going to a, a rock festival called Arc Tangent. If you're going, come say hi. They'll have to sort of go they'll have to step back in time though, won't they, by a day. It'd be very yeah. annoying. I'll be there Thursday and Friday, leaving Saturday morning. So come and say hi. <laughs> yeah, so someone that listens to this early Friday morning, they might be able to find you on the Friday. No, they'll definitely find me. I'll be hanging out by the boss area and be going to see a couple of amazing bands, uh, Daughters, and really excited about Racket Cannon, 
which is rocket cannon. Are they Dutch or are they Belgium? I don't know, but they're amazing. So come and dance with me. Dance, dance, make romance. Bye-bye, Spodcats. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.